0: Independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello out there. My name is Joe Armstrong, and thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day, a show that examines the changing face of music and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all blessedly without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, we are proud to bring you the Whitmore Sisters. Perhaps there exists nothing more beautiful than when beauty is mixed with sadness. Add in some world-class musical talent, the type of harmony singing only possible between siblings, and the benefit of the 10,000-foot view of life gleaned by formative years in flying machines, and you have a starting point for the Whitmore Sisters. The elder, Eleanor, has been making music for years as one half of the Mastersons and performing and recording as a member of Steve Earle's band of the Dukes. The younger of the pair, Bonnie, has been making a name for herself with a number of solo albums full of fearless songwriting and tours with the likes of James McMurtry. Although close, the Whitmore sisters hadn't recorded together in an official capacity until the COVID-19 pandemic presented a silver lining opportunity in the form of a self-imposed COVID bubble of isolation and time away from their normally busy schedules as working musicians. With music touring, recording, and nearly everything else shut down, Eleanor's husband, guitarist Chris Masterson, challenged Eleanor and Bonnie to use the break wisely and finally get to work as a duo in order to feature their ample talents. With Masterson producing, the Whitmore sisters conjured their debut album, Ghost Stories, in the midst of shutdowns and once-in-a-century uncertainty, and the results are self-evident and reflective of both their upbringing and their status as Roots Rock royalty. The Whitmore sisters' father was a Navy pilot and folk singer, and the album's opener, Learn to Fly, reflects life as experienced in the unmatched freedom and peril of flight. As for the other half of their family tree, their mother was an opera singer, which makes for the perfect bloodline to imbue the real-life tragedy of the loss of a pair of Bonnie's former romantic partners, one of whom was singer Justin Towns Earl, who died of an accidental drug overdose in 2020, into songs like Friends We Leave Behind. There is also a take on their friend Aaron Lee Tasjan's Big Heart Sick Mind and a cover of the Paul McCartney penned and Everly Brothers song On the Wings of a Nightingale to complement their original compositions. Ghost Stories has the beauty, the sadness, the wings, and the joy of life in its 11 songs, standing as a strong and long overdue debut from the Whitmore Sisters. So welcome to Independence Day, Eleanor and Bonnie, the Whitmore Sisters. Hello, friends. How are you?
1: Doing well. Thanks for having us,
0: Joe. I'm so happy to have you here in the studio at the world headquarters of Independence Day. You've got a new record out called Ghost Stories. Can't wait to talk about that. I can't wait for people to hear the songs you're going to play today. They are beautiful. You are top-notch pro musicians all, and top-notch musicians basically always deliver. So people should hang around for all those kinds of things. We're going to play a song from the new record in a few minutes, but I want to dive right in with some questions because... Making a record in COVID times is a very, very challenging proposition, and most of this Ghost Stories record was conceived and happened during the COVID times, correct?
1: Yes. uh, We really have to thank uh, my husband and musical partner, Chris Masterson, for... It's completely his fault. um, (laughs) Basically, (laughs) uh, you know, Bonnie and I have talked about making a record for a really long time, and um, we've written some songs together, but, um, you know, just with our schedules and constantly touring and all our separate
2: musical endeavors never had the time we to do it. We needed to have the time to slow down a little bit in order to like actually make this happen.
0: Yeah. And it should uh, we don't want to leave this hanging your sisters. Yes. Uh, and we didn't introduce you actually, Eleanor. Yes. And Bonnie and, Bonnie. and then Chris Hi. riding shotgun back there. Say hello, Chris. Hi. But you're going to say hello, Chris. I set you up, but you didn't take you didn't take my, didn't take my bait. Not enough it. coffee yet. Not but... enough coffee yet. It is early in the day for us musicians. Uh, I want to open up with something that's actually it's related to music but not related to music, which is it's kind of a loaded question because the last few years have been very tumultuous in a lot of people's personal lives, in our society, even worldwide. Are your people okay? Like are your families? Is everybody mostly okay? Because the answer isn't always yes nowadays.
1: It's uh... I think well it's not I guess the answer is, is no. Physically um, sort of. Um our parents are doing all right. Um, yeah. they're getting older. Um, but Chris uh, just lost his mom um mm-hmm. while we were out on the road this summer and um
3: non covid related, not okay. Um, <laughs> but he's yeah. still a sudden and it a lot to work
2: through. Um you yeah. know. There's so, been a lot of loss over the past, a you lot, know.
0: Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Like, because that's the thing, and you ask a question like that, the answer isn't all, like I said, the answer isn't always yes, everyone's fine, especially now we've had a pandemic that has now killed at last count. I think we just reached 5 million people worldwide. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, America, we, we're we over, where are we now? 700, uh, six, between six and 700,000 deaths, mm-hmm. I think. In America? The,
2: the greater portion of, of deaths is Americans. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> a sig- yeah. So, g- country American. per capita, that's a lot. Yeah. So, this is a theme that comes up on your new record ghost stories, this theme of loss, this theme of like emotional pain and trauma. And there's one specific quote that I want to reference. I think it came from you, Bonnie, in your biography. It said, and I quote, We've had a lot of loss, a couple dead ex-boyfriends and a lot of friends that have passed on. And writing about the grief, especially working towards this record, there has been a lot to consider. Now, there's an, that's one sentence, but there's an awful lot yeah. in that one sentence, right? There's one specific line, the line about um, a couple dead ex-boyfriends. That yeah. one <laughs> little mini phrase itself is doing a lot of heavy lifting. So like, how, like, what is it about music that helps you work through grief and pain?
2: Well, for me, writing like is the way that I deal. Like, I, I also have talked a lot about my own mental health as well. I suffer from depression, and um, writing was always a way for me to um, process those emotions. And I, and, I, and I think the fact that I can sing about those things, if somebody else can relate to it, then it's a healing thing for both of us. And so that's always been kind of my purpose along those lines. Now I actually go to therapy, and that's a, a, an extra thing that I've been trying to apply into the writing, too, is a, how to say something that is more therapeutic-driven, not just something about my anguish.
0: You know? Yeah. Well, it is cathartic. Yeah. I mean, I write songs, too. So, I mean, you you encode certain things in there. You, know, you lay yourself bare in sometimes ways that are metaphorical, like you you shroud it in a story or a character. You make mm-hmm. it the third-person thing. Uh, sometimes you just come out right and say it, you know. So, do you, of those ways, like how do you? Because you're all writers, mm-hmm. like what's your preferred way of doing that with your songs? Is it more because you I mean you've got a song that was it, the ballad of Bonnie and
2: Oh, this uh, Sissy and Porter,
0: yeah, yeah. On, on the record. So, like that's blatant and outright. You're naming names,
2: yeah. I'm I'm, I'm bringing up Chris Porter, who we yeah. lost in a tragic accident. He was another. He was one of my ex boyfriends, actually. Yeah.
0: So. From that phrase yeah. with all the heavy. A heavy, heavy phrase. So, I mean, how about for you, Eleanor? Like, you know, you when you write, do you, do you couch it more in metaphor or do you just come out and say the things that are painful and that helps you get through it?
1: Um, I, sometimes it starts as coming out and saying the things that are painful and then you kind of want to pull the lens back a little bit so that you can kind of uh, make it uh, reach more people, I guess, um, so that it's not all about you. It's um, more, you know, more people can connect and relate to it if you do that. Um, but, you know, some songs are just really personal. Um, you know, Chris Porter was a really good friend of, um, of ours, of Chris and mine, and um, Chris Masterson and mine and as well. And, um, you know, one of the songs on our last record, uh, The Last Laugh, was very specifically about him. But I think people can still relate to it. Like we still get people that will write us, you know, um, a message on Facebook or whatever and just say like this, I lost my friend or I lost my mom and I listen to the song and it means a lot to me. And, you know, I think that's really um, something that music does. It can provide a lot of healing, um, you know, for other people, not just yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's the cliche about music being the universal language, mm-hmm. Cause it, but it is true you know, it's vibrations in, in the air and in instruments and strings and drums. And when you, when you combine rhythm and music and melody and harmony and then layer on some, you know, equalization and compression and other things on top of that, it creates a sum that's so much greater than the whole. That it moves people. I mean, I can think of like I like seriously. Here's a quick question. This isn't something that's not in my notes at all. But there's only one song that makes me cry every single time I I hear it, which is Emmylou Harris's "Red Dirt Girl." Yeah. Every single time I get chills thinking about that song, just the scene it's she says. It's an
3: amazing song.
0: It's an amazing song. There was another one recently that kind of got me a little bit. Is there a song like that that like can you, can you think of one off the top of your head, maybe, or like something that especially moves you, or got to you some way?
1: I mean, that one definitely does. Um, we actually uh, got to perform that song with Emily. Mm. Yeah, I have mean,
0: played um, and
3: sang that with her, so it's... Yeah. It's, I, um, and, and she's known, it's funny, I mean, she's known as, you know, one of the great song interpreters. Right. But that's all her. Yeah. You know, and that's so, you know, it's it's, to, it's so funny to not be known or thought of as a songwriter first off. I mean, obviously, yeah. yes, she has that voice, but yeah. to, then it's like,
1: that is her song. That, yeah, and that then, is <laughs> her song.
3: Yeah, and
0: that's the one
1: that cuts the deepest. Um. Yeah,
0: it because I mean I was I was born in Alabama. That song is set in Alabama. Like I was thinking, I, I in that story, I would be the brother that died in Vietnam,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
0: And but my sister would be the one, the younger, the friend of the protagonist in that song. So, but that's what gets me when I think about my younger sisters and our relationship. We live two thousand miles apart to this very day, and I miss them. Right. And I'm I'm not a soldier who died in Vietnam. Thankfully for me, uh. But it's it just gets me like that's that beauty that's that unique thing about writing that gets to you on a level that like nothing else can. Mm-hmm. Well, you there's know,
2: things that you can you can say in a song that you can't say just outright. Yeah, like, that's the thing that music allows you to do. It allows you to kind of um, emote something even more. So Eleanor and I grew up with a, a mother who was classically trained in singing opera. I mean. I had no idea what they were singing about, but I felt what they were singing yeah. about. Yeah, so the hair like, still stood up on your arms. Yeah. even though it was in Italian. You know it, exactly, and it was just like the moment where you know, like the the heroine you know kills herself or whatever. like yeah. you were just weeping at that yeah. moment in time, because you just you're you're feeling that uh, emotional rush from the music as well.
0: Yeah, because people are imparting. Uh, I shouldn't. I was about to say singers, especially, but it can. It, it certainly can transcend the human voice. The human voice being so expressive mm-hmm. that someone could be singing in Italian, uh, in an opera, and exactly like you said, like the when you hear an incredible performance of someone who spent their whole life training to be able to deliver that performance on command, mm-hmm. you know, and they're and they're on that day. You know, it doesn't matter what language they're singing in. You you feel it from in the rafters. You feel it in the back row. Even on TV, here's it uh, after September 11th, when you know everyone was grieving, and Bruce Springsteen released the Rising record, which was the one of the first cathartic art things I think that came out after that, at least on a large scale. And I remember because I'd always thought before that moment that seeing bands play live on TV, like the energy, doesn't ever translate. Right. But when he came out and played the title track, I think it was on Letterman. And he came out, and for the first time in my life, I felt the energy of that band. That's a big band, and they put out a lot of energy through my television. Yeah, and it and it got me. It's like, oh, I should get this new Springsteen record. I haven't bought a Springsteen record since I picked up Nebraska when I, you know, when I was a kid or whatever. You know.
2: Do you remember the the divas thing on VH1? A little bit. Like I remember the first two that they did it, and they had you know like Celine Dion and and. Uh, I don't know. It was a whole bunch of like A-list people that were on it, but Aretha Franklin came on, and like it oh, was the moment oh, yeah. that she started seeing that it was like you could just tell that everybody was like, "We bow to you. Yeah. This is your show." Like, <laughs> yeah. like, there's just some people that just have that ability to just like deliver in a in a visceral way that you you feel it in your bones, and yeah. and that's the thing about vibration too. It really does like it. It's either gonna make you um, uh, have an emotional response. Or make you dance, you know. Yeah. It's and and all of those things are ways to combat trauma. Like dancing yeah. is a ways to get that out of your body and out of your system, and and music does that too. Yeah. In all forms. And
0: while we were setting up today, I know we talked a lot about empathy, mm-hmm. and we talked a lot about relating to other people. And when you speak that universal language. You play for a crowd. I'm sure you guys tour nationally and internationally regularly. That's your day job is a night job. Mm-hmm. And you can you feel when that energy is coming back in an audience. Mm-hmm. They may not understand the words you're saying, but they get it. You know, it's a universally human thing. And I, I mean, it, what it also does, other than connecting people and allowing us to emote things, is it also makes us make very strange life choices.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: We live in live in vans and buses and airports and things like that. But let's, let's get to this next thing, because I want to play a song from this new record. So you know, out of grief, in this particular case, comes a really special album, this Ghost Stories album that you've made. Um, Chris, this is a question for you. Actually, kind of a question for all three of you. Um, was making this record, was this like an, an ultimatum? Was it a dare on your part, Chris? I've read some stories in the bio about Bonnie, you coming out to California. It's like, okay, if you're going to be here, you've got to earn you're in your keep, going to write some songs... Uh, you know, you, we're all kind of in a bubble, at least for a while here in Los Angeles. Was it something to keep you from climbing the walls? Like, which of these things was it?
3: Uh, probably a bit of all of those. Uh, you know, I, you know, we all we obviously love hanging out with Bonnie, but she had had the idea to come out to our to our bubble, and I was just and we were at the time we're in a, a kind of a small one bedroom. You know, well, I mean, I guess a thousand square feet, and that is small. Uh, and I was just picturing, and I, I was picturing, you know, like. She's not just going to be on the couch for (laughs) three weeks. But also, I mean, keep in mind, Bonnie played on the last Masterson's record. So there was already plenty of musical intersection happening at the time. But I I don't think, you know, had had the pandemic not happened, we would have been out on a Masterson's tour. And Bonnie Mm -hmm. may have been out on some of that playing bass, but they would have never had the time to do this. So, like, Mm -hmm. I just remember... E telling me like, hey Bonnie wants to come out on I was just like, You guys should make a record. Yeah. And and they started writing like immediately. And I was on another I was making another record in uh you know, it was over at Sunset Sound and they were writing on Zoom and, and literally I finished my session, took a day off and set mics up and they got to work.
0: Okay. So it was a little bit of a dare. A little bit. <laughs> but, yeah. I, but it was more of a push. Like I yeah, think that
2: that we needed that in order yeah. to actually Make that step in the, that direction.
3: But then when you start thinking about blood harmony or sibling harmony, it's just right. like all you have to do is put the mics up. Yeah. Like there's no trickery involved. There's no, you know, the producer's job is just to frame
0: that. Yeah. Don't screw it up. What's the pilot's yeah. prayer? We talked about that a little right. bit before. <laughs> Lord, don't let me screw up. So I want to play a song from this record. We'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit about a little bit of biographical information about your family growing up, what led you from being like, pulling pigtails in the sandbox to making a record together, if you ever did such a thing. I also want to talk a little bit about how, you know, technically we made the record because there are different challenges in a pandemic, but let's hear a song first. The the Whitmore Sisters is the group on this week's Independence Day. The song is Big Heart, Sick Mind. The record is Ghost Stories. Let's check this out on Independence Day. (laughs) Joe Armstrong, thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. I'm glad that you do. I worked very hard on this show to bring you some great artists and this week's guests, the Whitmore Sisters. Where would you say you're based? The One thing says Brooklyn, the other thing's like L.A., but you've got a Texas connection.
1: Well, the Brooklyn goes back way to our first biography for the Mastersons. so we're definitely not in Brooklyn anymore. Um, Chris and I live in uh, L.A., and Bonnie lives in Austin. So um,
3: We've been here since 2016.
1: Yeah. Got so on. I think for the- I think
3: that's just part of like, you know, journalism is dead, uh, especially in music journalism, and people yeah. just copy paste. And uh, that was the bio on our first record from yeah. 2012.
0: Well, nobody gets paid for it anymore. Like, I can attest to this having worked in the news business. Like, the things that are you think are being written by top talent is being written by some poor college kid intern yeah. making nothing. Yeah.
3: Well, cool. Let's all compromise our craft. Let's all...
0: (laughs) It's the race to the bottom. The music's great, though. I love the new record. I played it all day yesterday. Thank you so much for making it. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that song before I ask you a little bit about the biographical information. The song was Big Heart, Sick Mind. Tell me the inspiration for that.
1: So um, I guess Bonnie and I were writing, and we were also considering co-writing with some other folks to get some songs together, so I reached out to our buddy Aaron Lee Tasjan. And he, he was, this gem. he just was like, well, here, what about this song? And it was a song that he'd already written that he'd recorded and he didn't put it on his most recent record. And I was like, are you serious? Like we can just like, it was perfect. Like mm-hmm. I was looking for something that was like kind of a little bit more like, I don't know, Dave Edmonds or like kind of more of a rock and fun
2: tune. Well, and he hadn't thought of it as a duet either. So like to be able to take it and kind of put a different spin on yeah. it. I think he was like, this is what the song needed.
1: Yeah, so um yeah, he just kind of handed us that song and um we were really glad he did because <laughs> it's going to be the single. So. Cool.
0: I love what he's up to. I've seen him play at Hardly Strictly a, a few times and I I just I dig his vibe. I dig what he's doing. So you could do a lot worse than to have someone like Aaron <laughs> Lee Tazgin giving you tunes to play on your record.
3: Oh, and well, and we go I mean, he played at our wedding. Yeah. Uh, we in all Brooklyn? lived in New York at the same time. We've written a
2: lot together too. Like I've had basically co-write with him on my previous records. This is Bonnie speaking, by the way. Um, but just so everybody knows, I'm the sick mind. Eleanor is the big heart.
0: <laughs> Context is <laughs> so very important. Yeah, but he's
3: he's great. And then on his on his what Karma for Cheap record, we wrote a song with. He and yo, we, us, and Yola, and him wrote one of the songs on yeah. that record. I like
0: what she's up to, too. There's uh, yeah. people incredible, say, you know. I, I have older relatives complaining constantly that there's no there's no more great music, and I say you're absolutely wrong. I think there's a mm-hmm. ton of great music being made, but I do think it may be harder to find it than yes, it once right. was, which is but it's a double edged sword, though, because we talked about this too when we were setting up. The advent of streaming technology has just or it started with Napster, the bottom fell out of the industry. But it's also allowed people to discover a mm. lot of things. I myself have discovered a lot of musicians that I probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Mm-hmm. I went down. I know, uh, Bonnie, you have toured with James McMurtry. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I'd always liked his music, and I'd had a record or two. But then I got access to a Spotify account because my special lady friend works for a thing. Because I feel weird about even paying for it because I think it robs musicians. But I got access to one, and I thought, well, I've always liked McMurtry. I'm just going to go I, so I went down that rabbit hole like right before the pandemic. So that's I've been immersed in McMurtry.
2: His songwriting some, just gets better and better. It's incredible. It's unreal. Yeah. It's his
0: his stuff is unreal and I think maybe this is maybe a little tangent but better than almost anyone I've heard. He's so good at giving humanity to marginalized everyone. White people, black people, It's black very people, brown interesting
2: people. to watch the audience as to who identifies as to what character, too. Right. Like he basically is able to write uh, songs the way his father writes books. Yeah. And it's incredible.
0: Yeah, he has a gift. Well, you guys have gifts, too. And I, I want to talk about how you got from, like, being kids, were there other siblings, or is it just the two? Just years? the two of us. Okay, so binary star system in terms of that. Mm-hmm. But set the scene in your household growing up. Okay. Oh, uh, you know, I know that flying is kind of a theme. It's a theme in your bio. It's kind of a theme on the record. We
2: lived on an airport. So okay. that's just like first off, there like were always airplanes, uh, taxiing around. Dad was always, always tinkering with something, rebuilding something covered in oil in some capacity, encouraging
1: us to fly. And, um, then of course, mom was usually giving lessons or learning some performance piece, yeah. um, uh, growing up. So there's always uh, mom singing opera, right? Not um, flying lessons, opera lessons, opera lessons, mm-hmm. and um. You know, Bonnie and I never really took any formal lessons from her, but you kind of just learned by osmosis.
2: Um, well, yeah. she would also let us know if we weren't if we weren't doing it correctly. We knew, like she would inform <laughs> she us. She let us know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, she did not let me try out for cheerleading or anything like that. You we were not allowed. She, no. I would ruin my vocal cords, and um, I was declared a, I was going to be a singer when I was two. I was in the hospital. Was <laughs> I had reoccurring pneumonia, and they were going to put a, a intubate a, you in. Yeah, and they were. They were, my my mom went screaming down the things, like, don't hurt my baby's vocal cords. She's got to be a singer. (laughs) I'm like, oh, God. That's a lot of pressure for a two-year-old. No
0: pressure, kid. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So-
2: but we had a family band, though. That yeah, would, we, had, um, it was a, we have a very unusual upbringing.
1: Um, you know, my, I can remember in junior high, people would be like, what would you do this weekend? And I'm like, oh, we played a bar on Saturday with our dad. And they'd just look at me like I was completely crazy. Like, how are you in a or bar? Or they didn't believe us. Like, yeah. oh, you,
2: we, we went to a, a trip with a couple other people that had a similar airplane up to the middle of nowhere that you can't get to unless you fly and land on yeah. the lake
0: or something. And, now, and where was this in the world?
1: Uh, we grew up in uh, Denton, Texas. Denton, Texas,
0: and that's north of Dallas. North issue? of Dallas, yeah. Fort Worth. Okay. Now, did either of you get a pilot's license? Like Both of possible? us. Did. That's yeah. cool. Do you fly to shows?
1: No, no. <laughs> it's uh There. Are, so the problem. The problem with flying is. Uh, well, for- you
2: only get to the airport. That doesn't get you to the gig. So okay. then yeah, you, you still know, like, have to transport. Have a plus, car. there's usually not Weather. enough like. You Weather know, is a problem. Space for um, everything that it. you'd want to bring. So Do you remember the
0: guitar player Steve Morse? He was in Kansas for a while. He was like kind of a 80s treader, long stringy hair. He was a pilot and he would fly himself to shows. And they probably had resources. Plus the whole... uh financial paradigm of the music business was way different back then. I actually didn't know that.
3: Uh, There's obviously Bruce Dickinson with Iron Maiden. Yeah. Yeah. They made that documentary. Yeah.
0: So it's not – well, David Gilmore got a pilot's license uh, from Pink Floyd. I mean, it's not unusual for performers. Harrison Ford, I know, is way into aviation. I myself have a Lego Saturn V behind your head, Eleanor. (laughs) I grew up, I I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, wasn't raised there, but the the rockets and the planes were always in my blood. I was going to be a pilot. That was my goal in life. And then when I figured out that most pilots have to go through the military, and I did the math that I might have to kill someone someday, or be part of a machine that killed Mm -hmm, someone, mm -hmm. that was right out the window. And it took me years to get the recruiter to stop calling me. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) God. You know how I got him to stop calling me? Hmm. I told them I was gay.
2: Oh, Oh, there you go. That'll
0: work. No, I'm not gay, but it wouldn't matter if I was. Yeah. But back then, it, you couldn't be in the Those military. Yeah, so if you admit
2: admitted, like you're not allowed in. You're like, good,
0: fine, I'm glad we fixed. This. Whatever I got to do, <laughs> leave me if I just mm-hmm. leave me alone. Okay, yeah. that was the thing. So now, flying is kind of a theme for this record. You know, we're gonna play a song in a little bit called "Learn to Fly" in a few minutes. Uh, but flying is a strange thing to ground you, if you allow me to use that phrase. But is but has is that the case in your life? Because it's this it's this motif on the record. It's a motif in your lives. You know, it ties you to your father. Does he still fly? Yes, yes. he does.
1: He still um, teaches. Yeah, okay. actually, um, I don't know. I think flying gives you a different perspective, um, and um, it's it's just kind of you know, it's obviously fun to to get up in the air and yeah. see see everything below you in a different context. Um,
2: and I think it feels very natural in a lot of ways just because of, of how we grew up. You know, it, it, we were just always tooling around when, whatever family vacation or trips that we made, it was always usually in our own personal plane. And so, like, just knowing that you can take that to such remote areas, like, we would go down to, to Turlingua mm-hmm. near Big Bend National Park mm-hmm. um, every year and, and we'd play a gig on New Year's Day at Lakeva. That was my first gig underneath the penisaurus erectus which was a, a fake fossil thing that they put on the wall but I mean there's just so many things that like it was so normal for us but then you know in retrospect or explaining this to other people are like wow that's really weird you
1: know yeah. <laughs>
0: like well I think it's really cool but, and I think <laughs> right. it
2: also kind of sets the stage
1: for being a musician and being nomadic and right. and traveling so that was yeah. a pretty easy transition um from childhood to professional uh, professionalism <laughs>
0: so yeah. in your professional lives now being mean you're a professional musician you travel a lot I've traveled a ton mm-hmm. in my life spent a lot of time in airports a lot of time on planes are you able to I hate to use the word enjoy but are you able to enjoy the process when you're just being shuttled around when you're on a greyhound in the sky given your background given your upbringing in flying or is it just part of the gig or sometimes, how does it
1: times I actually will occasionally put me into a creative space where I'll be just a little bit tired but not able to sleep and riding on a commercial jet sometimes I'll even get a song idea on a plane um so there must be some bit of that but you know uh, traveling can be a grind especially like at the airport yeah. these days it's not really a whole lot of fun
2: but <laughs> yeah. i think i prefer as an adult to be able to just buy the ticket and not have to non-rev anymore because that was like a whole different perspective not have
0: to do what i'm sorry
2: non-revving which you're, you're basically you're one of the last people to get on the plane like mm-hmm. if they have a seat for you then you're allowed to get on but like you're stand-by not standby sort of situation. yeah exactly okay um so there was a lot of travel along those lines where we spent like a ridiculous amount of time like the atlanta airport since i was a huge right. hub for delta
0: yeah yeah i was always in dallas at the time yeah. when i like, like the year that i was traveling the most like i know every nook and cranny every <laughs> outlet everywhere the wi-fi was good where it was bad mm-hmm. you know how to get quickly from one terminal to another because dallas has got that strange
2: oh yeah, yeah. like
0: half uh, hemispheres mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. get from place to place but um, i'm also traveling a lot to the southeastern united states from california so i'm always it always seems more lately Houston, but for years and years and years it was Dallas. Always in Dallas.
2: Well, nine eleven changed a lot of our ability to fly too. Just, yeah. I mean, it used to be able. I could ride with my dad from the, from his. I uh, mean, what are we saying? The the employee lot mm-hmm. and come in through the the right. pilots lounge, which is right, something right, they right. would never allow today's yeah. days.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this, again, I don't want to get conspiratorial. It's, it seems to me, having lived in the post-9-11 universe for now 20 years, it seems like the illusion of safety more than right. actual safety itself. It's a little
1: bit of security uh, theater.
0: Yeah, a right. little, little tip of the hat. You know, we're, we're watching you, guy who's not white, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me sad because I missed it. I used to travel, again, I was a musician and a technician, and I would have a Leatherman tool. Mm-hmm. And I would just fly with it in my bag. Like I could take apart the plane while it's flying if I, you know, back then. But now, you know, yeah. I nothing even close to it. But let's move away from the flight thing for just a little bit. Sure. Chris, this is going to touch on something you mentioned just a few minutes ago. You mentioned like um, like, like family harmonies, sister harmonies. We've got the Louvins, uh, Everleys, uh, many other people. But you two definitely have that thing. Your speaking voices are very similar as well. Um,
2: it's confusing for the sound
1: guy always. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's actually confusing for the mixing engineers. Sometimes yeah. they don't know who to mix um, louder in the in the mix, and so like we would get mixes back and be like, "So actually, Bonnie's singing right. lead on this song, so you're gonna need to make <laughs> yeah. her a little louder." Because <laughs> we just never confusing. had this problem quite. Well, before, and so. also like the like the Leuven brothers, like sometimes our right. parts will cross over, and we will go from one person singing the melody right. switching over to the harmony. And Chris and I do that on our Mastersons gig too, where we'll be kind of trading parts and it does get a little confusing for
0: uh, yeah for for people who aren't musicians basically you know harmony singing people know what that is two people singing together and they complement each other uh but uh, the lubins was the first place that i heard it the jayhawks was the next evolution of that for in my listening sphere Mm -hmm. was people you know the the voices are so alike like yours are that what's what you just described there is no real one melody line right. that anyone is singing. It's the melody and the harmony all works as one cohesive thing, and you're both taking turns, but not turns like you take a verse, I take a verse. We're talking within right. a line, yeah. within a In, phrase.
3: Emily referred to that as the third voice. Yeah, you
0: know. yeah, like you know the the Jayhawks. Yep. you mm-hmm. know was the first place I well, first heard it because I, I I started with a band like that and then went back to the Louvins.
3: Right, right, and those guys—they, you know—they switch. You know, who's singing lead? They, they'll fall into unisons and then right. split out. And there's some, there's a lot of great. We've been touring with them, and it's just, yeah, a, you know, such a treat.
0: The unison is the key thing, and I think that's the key difference for that, like harmony, like the shape note singing, that the Southern style thing. Because the Luvens were from Alabama as well, and my grandmother mm-hmm. used to go to singings, is what she called them, <laughs> for real. <laughs> and my grandmother still sings and still plays guitar. She's 94 awesome. years old. Dig mm-hmm. that, right? It's awesome. That's there's amazing. hope for all of us. Uh,
2: it's probably what's keeping her young.
0: It is, and among yeah, it is. She's active. She mm-hmm. fell recently, but she's okay. She's. I think she's going to get out of rehab soon. So here's to you, Jewel, uh, Jewel Armstrong. Um, so, g- given that you do this kind of close note harmony trading off thing, like which which of you, like what do, is each of you bring to this mix? I mean, not just as simple as instruments, because I know Bonnie, you play guitar. Eleanor, you play violin, plus a little bit of keyboards, plus you also sing. Uh, Chris, you kind of being the utility man, playing some guitar through this. Like, but we well,
3: played d- all the bass on
2: the record, too. I'm a, a too. bass. Okay, and, oh, yeah, I'm, Madonna, that's right. Yeah. You do play bass. I forgot mm-hmm.
0: about that. You're absolutely right. The But what do you, not just instruments, but what do you bring to this whole? Because your sisters. You're similar. You're from the same family. But you each have to, you're not the same person. Like what do you bring? We
2: do have a little bit of twin sort of linkage between us I think in some regard. We're like twins that are like 6 years apart. <laughs> like
1: I I'm a Gemini. <laughs> so I have a, a twin side even within myself. So uh I don't know. I Bonnie and I are just so similar. Um you know, she's definitely got Bonnie has a kind of a bigger voice and she's got I a like
2: little do like the way that I think that will I mean, it was, it was. they were talking to Will Johnson but basically it was like we both hit the target but one of us is more like an arrow and the other one mostly blows it up
1: Yeah, so <laughs> you, she, Bonnie's a bomb and I'm kind of more the arrow I've been um, lovingly nicknamed the pitch bitch um, because <laughs> I am kind of uh, a little hardcore um, when anybody's she, out. she has a more
2: reaction to uh, something that's not right than say maybe other people
0: yeah. Well, there's, I feel like there's a, there's like an allowable range of pitchiness. It mm-hmm. depends on who you're singing. Like, I was, I love John Hyatt. I mean, who doesn't love John oh, yeah. Hyatt, right? I was listening, I've been, again, I've been, I've also been listening to a lot of John Hyatt. I mean, I have been for forever, but artists kind of ebb and flow and you're listening. And I've been listening to a lot of John Hyatt, like filling in those records from like 10 years ago that I didn't get mm-hmm. when they came out. And like, he's pitchy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's all over the place, but he's awesome, right? So there's an allowance. And I think it's contextual as far as what's allowed in terms of pitch, because I grew up in choral singing, you mm-hmm. know, 40 voices, 12-part stuff, half-note harmonies, and very complex arrangements. Right. I, I love that. Right. To this day, I miss that more than anything. Well, um,
1: to nerd out on that a little bit, um, as a string player, like when I'm doing string arrangements, I will often triple apart. part, because if you double a part, mm-hmm. it can kind of sound phasey and right. sounds more out of tune. When you add that third part, it kind of, it's like everything just kind of comes together and it sounds bigger and um you know they don't all three parts don't have to be exactly right the same um and it and it sounds bigger but it's funny how pitchy it can be if it's just two parts and so like as singers when you're doing two parts they kind of do have to be a little bit more correct yeah. than um Maybe even if a third part was added, so.
0: Yeah, well, the more exposed something is sonically, the more your ear is going to be drawn to whatever it's doing. Mm-hmm. That's that's just it's math, quite simply. And I learned the exact same thing. I, my uh, old guitar player and I arranged a big like eighteen piece orchestra thing for our piece. We can't afford an eighteen piece orchestra, but we could hire a violin player, mm-hmm. a, a viola player, a cellist. And we just did, we wrote the bass part for the cello because it was low enough. We kind of fudged on that a little bit, but then overdubbed that. But well, we learned right away exactly what you just said, mm-hmm. which is that two, they're binary. Your ear is drawn to whichever one is
3: a out. little out or mm-hmm. a, little,
0: a little early or a little late. But as soon as you add that third one, it glues it all together. And then if you want to go beyond that, it's fine. It just adds more yeah. thickness and more sweetness, but you got to have the three. But when it's two voices, which is a lot of that in what you do. On this record and in your live shows You have to be on mm-hmm. You know Bonnie you've got the bigger voice You know the shotgun As opposed to the targeted weapon And but It still has to fit within that context And fortunately you have your sister mm-hmm. With whom to harmonize
1: mm-hmm. And that's the easiest person to sing with um, You know Bonnie and I just Kind of like somehow it's sort of have automatic Telepathy mm-hmm.
0: Yeah very nice. Okay, I want to hear a song in just a second, but I had one last question of this for this portion of our show. It's it's a funny question, and I think you've kind of already answered this, but are you too close?
2: Um, not when we were growing up. I actually divorced her for a period of time, which was very painful. Um, and How old were you at that time? I was in my mid-20s.
0: Okay, so you're an adult by that point.
2: I was an adult, but I was I had moved to Nashville and was kind of going through a, a manic period of time. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Mm, Eleanor can be very, like... Direct. Well, she's very direct, but also, like, um, when she thinks that something should be done in a certain way, it's hard to... It, it's it's more of an um, endeavor to have a, 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 <laughs> a, a... To have a conversation that doesn't just blow out of proportion or mm-hmm. something of that sort. And at that point in time, I didn't know... I needed to establish a boundary mm-hmm. and I needed to do that for my own self in a lot of different ways. So yeah. that allowed me to kind of do that. And from that, um, we've actually been closer than we've ever been and yeah. sort of remained that way. Yeah. I think so. growing up was a little
1: tough just cause we were six years apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I just was a lot older and not super
2: into having, um, my little sister tag along. Well, she also literally and... like was having to take care of me or make sure that I was, because Eleanor knew what was what what the deal was. We were very much like we needed to be. Lot we, you know, there was no argument over getting in the airplane. It's like I, I had. We all had to participate, and so there was more of this sort of like. I don't want to say it was trauma, but like there was so much uh, pushing into that direction of like the things that we had to do as a family. There was no like discussion or or having any type of outside wants under those circumstances, yeah. and so I think. You know, you just ended up being quiet and do going along with what everybody else was needing you to do. Right. And um, I, I feel like Eleanor actually bore the brunt of a lot of things because, you know, I think my mom was had this idea of she was going to be the perfect child. And uh, yes. And when I came along, you know, and I'm sick at the age of two, and I'm just like want to love everybody. I got away with a lot that she didn't, and so uh, I, you know, I I kind of had the advantage of being the young younger sibling along those lines. Yeah.
0: Uh, Eleanor, you're speaking my truth, because I'm also the oldest, mm-hmm. except there's four more siblings after me. And there's, there's a dynamic, like sibling order dynamics... Is is such a fascinating subject to me, and how? Because so there's there's sibling order dynamics. Who's the oldest? Because the oldest gets the brunt of all the parents, all the rules, neuroses right. right off the bat. Because yeah. the parents have never parented before, right? So they're figuring out. You're the big
2: experiment. How...
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. You're like yeah, that's exactly but it. You're <laughs>
2: held held at a higher standard, right. And then as the oldest, you're also trying to teach the youngest. Like right. these are the standards of which you live by, and then when they go behind you and be like, "But actually, I can do this," and then right. it's like. Then it's a rift at this point because right. I'm doing something that like Bonnie, she wasn't able to get. Bonnie away learned with. how
1: to manipulate
2: the parents, and I like never really figured. Well, that out. Well, I learned that like the direct way was not the way to get what I wanted. Right. So I got to try a different way of, a, of a, you know, Getting bargaining, things. <laughs> bargaining to have things work out my direction. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you're like you're. There's the order that you are, Chris. Where are you? In the I'm the oldest of how many.
3: Um, well, so I had a younger brother growing up, and then I had a half-brother and sister that were from out here, but okay. in the house, okay. I was the oldest. I'm a year and a half older than my brother.
0: Yeah. Like the, the I, I, also, you know, I know you produce music. I produce music. Like I fall very easily into that role of, like my girlfriend would say, bossy because i've been I, I was put into that role very much like you eleanor since time and Memo- like that's all i ever knew mm-hmm. i was like in charge of a brood of young children and there was 6 years between me and my next one in line so there was wow. even a gap Bossy. and then there was one every other year and it was like <laughs> you know it's like like think about a hierarchical system like the military where it's like you know mom and dad are the generals and then i'm not even a colonel because i'm a kid still i'm their child but i'm like a sergeant get it done Right, you're that's like the role for the oldest child yeah. take the privates and take the hill go take yeah. that hill and that's what that's what it was like wow. marching orders like i you know so i learned very easily how to extrapolate a big project and then then the resources at hand well and then, and then, then, then how to how to do that to and then your
1: parents that. kind of put that on you they're like okay you're the oldest you're in charge and and right. so like so
2: you kind of have the. she literally burden. saved me from drowning a couple of times like yeah. i know that she's like had my back like that that was never a question of that uh, one way or the other there was always the love there but the like took a long yeah. time to get around to um uh, superseding the love
0: yeah. yeah i think this is a great place to play a live song yes. what is the first song we've got queued up tell me a little bit about this uh
1: well Kinda this what is we we're learn, talking about. learn to fly uh so uh tying this, it all together is, right yeah. off the bat I'm tying it all together uh, enjoy
0: okay so this is the whitmore sisters the song is learn to fly from their new album ghost stories on independence day let's listen to this
4: One,
5: two, three. If you want to ride roller coasters, you must grow so tall.
0: That is the Whitmore Sisters, accompanied by Chris Masterson. So happy to have you guys here at Independence Day. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're busy. Musicians are always busy, always on the move. And it means so much to me when people come and share their stories and share their emotions and share their experiences. So thank you again for being oh, here. Absolutely. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for doing us, what you're doing. <laughs> so thank you. As we say in Chicago, it's all, all tree Thanks for coming out. So my next question, great song, by the way. Dug that a lot. People should pick up the record. Oh, by the way, just so we don't get this out of the way, uh, the com is where you can go to uh, get this music. Also, they're on Twitter at Whitmore Sisters. That's the southern way to say it. Mm-hmm. Whitmore. The record comes out on the 21st of January, so pick that up as well. So my next question, we've kind of alluded this. We've been talking around this a little bit, but why did you wait so long to make an album together? I know you've kind of cross-pollinated on projects that you've done in the past. But it's like the Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie Ray Vaughn thing. Like, why do they wait so long to make this record? In your case, what was it?
1: Um, I think it just took a long time for us to kind of just... You kind of have to develop your own self um, and first. And, you know, I, I kind of made my own solo record pretty late um, in my musical career. Um, also at the encouragement uh, from Chris, who produced that record. And, um, you know, then we have been working the past two years to, uh, on our Mastersons endeavor. And, um, you know, Bonnie's been, uh, you know, working on songwriting and writing songs for, um, much earlier than I have been. Um, so I think it's just, it's been a lot of just, you know, time, not having the time to do it. We was
2: something we've talked about and wanted to do and kind of always knew we would do. i think it was always a suggestion that other people wanted us to do it wasn't something we needed to come to it as a a project that we wanted to do together because that's something that we desired not something that somebody else outside was saying this will be a great marketing tool or something like that the next you know the chicks or whatever like that that like especially when we were playing in a band i was we were both in this band when i was about 15 and she was you know 21 and and having to again take care of her younger sister so i think that also kind of like uh led it to this wasn't the right time yeah
1: we had a lot of animosity working together growing up um in the family band and in the band that we had uh when she was 15 and i was in college so I think with all of that kind of past history working together, we were pretty nervous about um, making music, and so I don't kind think of our, we were ready
2: to do it. Our, I think we needed to get to a point well, and, where. And our we first
1: are now. kind of dabbling into doing that together um, was actually on our most recent uh, Masterson's record, No Time for Love Songs, and we brought Bonnie out because we wanted her to be involved, but we kind of we brought in uh, this guy Tyler Chester because um, he plays bass and he also plays keys, and we we're like, well, if things get weird, then we can kind of like. At least they had a backup Like up. we, we had a redundant systems. <laughs> um, but well,
3: I mean, a husband and wife band fronted right. band is already a that's uh, already right. a that's cool pretty yeah, big enough elephant yeah. in the room. Then so you add like, siblings right. into
0: it. Yeah, the therapist could make a, have a field day with what's going on. <laughs> but here it went better
3: than person. anticipated. So yeah, like, yeah. Okay. I mean, and then in Shooter, Jennings, who was producing, mm-hmm. kept on throwing Bonnie on bass. yeah, it just it worked. Yeah, it he loved her
0: Yeah. Yeah, so okay. Now we talked about before, you know, the kind of the inspiration, Chris. You kind of like a little bit of a challenge, you know, when Bonnie arrives in LA uh, about making this record. So what what was the what was the final like choice that made you think now is the time? Was it was it like well, actually just as simple as COVID inspired? It
1: really was as simple as him going, "You guys should you should take this time to do this," and we were like. Oh, that's a great idea. Like, that's... It was what, kind of like, well, duh. Well, duh. You know, okay. and so we... The
0: husband has a good idea for once. Might as well do it, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: and it was a little rushed because she, you know, was already kind of planning on coming in just like three weeks. So we yeah, okay. we had one song, uh, Friends We Leave Behind, that we'd already... That was done. And so that was our
2: first foray of like knowing that we wanted to make the project, I think that was our first attempt to at be like, Okay, we're gonna write songs together, but like, you know, we write one song and then a few months would go by or a year and no more writing. So it was kinda yeah. like I think both of us uh, have procrastinating nature about us. So if we have like a pressure on us, it's uh-huh. a lot easier for us to like
0: Yeah be Chris
2: creative. Is really good at putting on the
1: pressure. Yeah, he's really good (laughs) at that.
0: (laughs) I say it all the time that limitations are very good for art. Yeah. right. Mm -hmm. It's easy to think, uh, you know, I think a lot of young musicians, you fall into this trap like, well, when I get that guitar, I'll be able to do this. Or when I get that amplifier. Now, of course, you need an instrument, of course, you know, unless you're just going to do an a cappella album. So setting that aside, you need to have instruments. But we think like, well, when when I get this thing, and I think that could even be extrapolated out to other things in life. Like when I get this thing, then I'll be there. But then there's always another there. And there's always another thing. And there, I, mean, I, I procrastinate right. too. So when you set, even if they're self imposed limitations, like once you put some parameters on it, like, okay, uh, an artist I just had on the show recently, Leanne Skoda. I'm not sure if you know Leanne, an incredible voice. But she did a challenge during the pandemic where she and a friend who was in another city, they challenged each other to write a song a day for a month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that's a big challenge. Like I yeah. probably would have got, wouldn't have gotten quite that ambitious with it, but they did it. And like all, all she's got an EP that came out and then another one right after that. And the songs are great. So, I mean, Chris, this is for you a little bit. You know, you're the producer. So they come to you and it's kind of your idea. They say, okay, let's pull the trigger. Let's do this. How do you then focus them? How, like, what are, like, how do you create those limitations? How do you motivate them as the producer for this project? Also, being married to one and sister in law with the other.
3: Well, I think it was just, you know, the idea just to, to do it, to take the time, because when are we going to be gifted? You know, how can we make this pandemic? You know, this thing where the whole world is shutting down. It's, it's not just us. You know. um Yeah. How can we find a silver lining? Yeah. So, and the two of them writing, you know, which started on Zoom, and and then, then you just kind of stay out of the way, because I think when I think about making a record, you know, I. I think it would be doing that project a disservice to try to put it in a shoebox stylistically right. or genre-wise before you you know what the playing field looks like. Yeah. So when you get a a, a few songs in, you kind of know where the record's going to head or you know <laughs> some of the choices you might make, but the first part of it's just stay out of the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well gentle nudges. There's different styles of production. There's the like I I usually like the Rick Rubin style. Which is like work on, you know, help them help the artist be the best version of them they can be, right. and release the best album they can do at that time, you know, because sure. things that, that that will change over time. Like different people have all kinds of things. Well, going of course, on
3: in their lives. but they're both really good, and and I knew that yeah. that it was going to be you know very performance based. Even though we kind of worked backwards, we worked to you know percussion loops and percussion instruments, and then we tracked the rhythm section. So it was almost a Jeff Lynne type situation yeah. but basically we'd play a song five times okay and move on sure you might go hit a hot spot or something but it's it's very performance based yeah it's because they sing so well so then really the job is just frame what they're doing
0: yeah yeah because what you're doing i mean the record i don't want to say it's expansive but it does it touches on a few different bases there's a song in there that's uh it reminds me of the mavericks it's like Texas swing a little That's
1: bit. That's the Hurt and Fire Letdown. Let yeah. And then
0: there's songs. Again, I'm disassociated from titles because I listened when I was setting up. So forgive me for that. But the there's other things that are more like kind of straight up two-steppy country. There are other things that like made me think of musical theater. There's some cool... There's an augmented chord in there somewhere that I heard. There's some minor four chords in there somewhere. So it's not just like cookie cutter country stuff. There are more flavors that made it into this stew, you know. Mm-hmm. So where like where did like so you you've moved on to the writing phase now for the record. Where did the different elements from this stew come from? You Bonnie you said that you'd kind of started writing before that. Chris, did you in, give them parameters in terms of this? You kind of just said you just stay out of the all. way. Stay out of the way. But so but how did you, were there any
2: I think Chris's basic biggest like contribution was giving permission for I yeah. mean I mean not that it was like his to do but like no, no, no. they have their own band together too right. so like to be like we hey, probably we have wanna...
3: more you know more of an unspoken and we have our t- touch And by stones, by we you say you and Eleanor. Eleanor and I. Okay. Yeah. Uh, People can't see us.
2: But
1: all three of us have a really um wide musical influence and you know a lot of different influences. You know, Bonnie and I obviously have a classical background with our mom, but our dad was a folk singer, and like a lot of the songs that he would cover that weren't his, like we didn't even realize. Still finding like, these songs we, later we would on be, in our life. You know, in junior high or high school, when we would finally hear an original recording and be like, "Oh, that's the Beatles," or "Oh, that's <laughs> Bob Dylan," um, and it, you know, so we and you know, in our Mastersons recordings, we were often. Just kind of riding the ridge of like Ray Davies and Ray Price, where we have (laughs) the Southern um, influence because we're from Texas, but um, we are you know Anglophiles and really love um, pop music in the sense of Beatles pop and um, and so it's I think it's really fun to write a country song and then figure out like hurting for a letdown is like a straight up country shuffle and a lot of people that record um, country music. In modern days, you know, it's like almost this like throwback kind of kitschy thing, and it just doesn't sound magical. It, it just works sounds, in the
3: dance hall, but it doesn't. It, it falls doesn't work. In the, on the album. The...
1: the magic of of the of the music doesn't necessarily come through on a lot of the recordings, and so, you know, he he just really wanted us to to not have that be some kind of like time capsule piece. Where and I think he did a really good job of. Encouraging us to um, produce it in a way that was a lot more whimsical, um, and uh, you know some Beatlesque vibes and Mellotron and wacky piano well, and I'll strings. Well, almost
3: something like the Kinks, Muswell, Hillbillies, and like mm-hmm. listening to that as as opposed to you know trying to picture that as a straight up shuffle with walking bass and yeah, um, you know how do we deconstruct and then reconstruct and still keep yeah, a, a, you know alive you know, performance-based feel to it, but... Yeah. I do think
2: that there's something about, like, because because so much of these songs specifically are, are about loss and wanting to not to take something that's already heavy to lighten it, so, like, being able to have those whimsical elements in there to sort of lift you from the sorrow, like, that's yeah. kind of, like, I think an idea we... I, I think that we both all tend th- to take... All three of us tend to take this sort of... You know, take the subject of what it is, and then like do the music almost opposite sometimes, just to give it some levity. Or, yeah. Or um, I think it's really fun. This is Eleanor, by the way. It's really fun to
1: uh, write uh, something that the lyrics are really heavy and really cutting, but then the music is more like you know happy sounding. And so I think Amy Mann is a really good example of yeah. somebody that uh, that writes those kind of songs. And um, it's it's almost tricks the listener in a way because like you're just kind of like jamming along and then when you listen to the words you're like oh ouch <laughs> yeah yeah
0: I love those juxtapositions like there's a lot of material on my new record it's very politically charged based on so much of what's going on in our world right now in our country specifically but like my thing is I keep trying to make an acoustic record like that's because I I always thought about is like. Before MTV unplugged, which is now the millennials won't even do. You yeah. remember? Do you remember um, yeah. uh, yes, um, I do. Okay.
2: I'm an elder millennial. Some a of lot them of may not like even to... know what that is.
0: <laughs> but like, there was a show that you know brought musicians on, and they would just have them play unplugged. But I thought that Neil Young had always been doing that. Mm-hmm. He was the for me. He was like the the prototypical example or the, or the first example of someone who had like very acoustic music and then super ragged almost punk music, and he kind of he would blend them. Excuse me, a little bit, but it was almost this binary thing and uh and so so applying that to what i'm doing i feel like when certain people got elected and empathy became uh there's a dearth of empathy in our society right now i got really angry about that and sad about that so but my music like i felt like it had to be very powerful i know you could i could have gone against type and made a very quiet album that was very charged but like for me like it felt like it had to be it had to have the energy of a political rally it had to have that like Pink Floyd in the flesh, overture kind of bombastic feel. But the but the like but ACDC sings about banal topics. It's awesome. A C D C is great for what they're doing. Sure. But like, so my thing was, well, what if ACDC sang about things that mattered? Mm-hmm. So that's what I kind of try to create, at least with some of my new record. Anyway, enough right. about me. Um, before we move on, I want to hear another song in just a minute, but there's there's also two covers on this record. We touched upon the first one, which was, you know, when an Aaron Lee Tasjan song falls in your lap, you do it, right? Uh, The other one is a McCartney song, but he wrote it for the Everlees. How did that one get into the mix?
1: Um, So years ago, this is Eleanor, um, Chris and I, uh, when we were playing with Steve Earle, um, he. Uh, Will Rigby was um, playing drums in the band at that time uh, from the DBs, um, and um, he sent us this demo that McCartney had made for the Everleys, and the Everleys recorded it kind of in the 80s um, with Dave Edmonds producing, and so the production is kind of a little dated sounding with the, you know, gated reverb and stuff that I don't (laughs) love to listen to now.
0: Cheap digital Um, reverbs.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a really amazing song, but then when you hear McCartney's demo it's like it totally makes a lot of sense so we kind of worked it up at soundcheck and and always loved the song but kind of forgot about it and then actually when um we, Bonnie and I reached out to Aaron um Aaron s- suggested it and um and we were like oh great idea <laughs> so thanks to Aaron again actually Aaron and Chris kind of suggested it at the same time so um it was uh it was a good idea and of course we love the Everlys, and um, it's just it's yeah. a little bit more of an unknown everlees tune i think so yeah. um, it, it was really fun to cover well in paul's
3: demo he he performs it like the ever it's uh, like okay. paul it's mccartney trying to be the
0: everlees and it's yeah. so
3: charming and cool and
0: yeah yeah well to to tie everything together in terms of that uh you know we have sibling harmonies Mm-hmm. you know, working, you, you girls sound, ladies, women sound fantastic together. You've got that thing down where you can jump around and I, whether you, you've rehearsed it or it was just instinctual, I don't know. I don't even sure it even matters, but you know, here, you know, now presented as the Whitmore sisters, it's cohesive and it makes sense. So I'm glad you picked that song. Great thing there. <laughs> so speaking of that, why don't we do another live song? What's next?
1: Uh, this song is the Friends, Friends We Leave Behind. And uh, it's actually the very first song that Bonnie and I wrote for the project. And um, we wrote it um, for another friend of ours that we lost. Um, his name was George Reef And he was a really amazing bass player. Um, played on all of our um, Masterson's records and Bonnie's first couple There's records. Two. and He, he played, was my bass guru. He uh, he played he, he was a very McCartney-esque uh, kind of a bass player. Um, very melodic. And, um, and uh, so we wrote this for him.
0: All right, the Whitmore sisters with a wonderful eulogy to their lost friend. The song is Friends We Leave Behind on Independence Day. ¶¶ The song is Friends We Leave Behind, the artist, the Whitmore Sisters, with Chris Masterson writing Shotgun. Thank you, ladies, gentlemen, very much for being on the show. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It's yeah. great to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of making the record. We've Again, we've kind of touched upon this a little bit. We've kind of delved into that. But this was taking place during a pandemic. I know I had huge challenges trying to safely finish a record, especially vocals being the most asp- mm-hmm. you know aspirational, as in not into aspire, but... <laughs> you're you're spraying particles all over the place and microphones in rooms, like so. How did you address those specific challenges? I know you've probably got a home studio of some kind. Did you do most of it there?
3: Yeah, you know we we've over the years accumulated uh, a lot of stuff. I mean, a, a home studio is kind of like a, a virus. You know, <laughs> it starts it out. You know, I'm just going to have this tape recorder in the corner, and then then eventually you have snakes and mic stands and pianos and <laughs> yeah. So uh, we do. Um, but that was kind of you know, when I when when Bonnie wanted to come out, I knew that um you know, we we did have those constraints because of the pandemic. I mean, we were working on some other records in studios around Hollywood. And, you know, a big budget record can, you know, block out Sunset Sound or we had gone to New York right. where we put on face shields and flew across the country to make a Steve Earle record and we were testing in and out of the session and but that you know, just you know, we're living in a music business where budgets are strained already. Right. And, you know, that's not even, you know, the budget to get everyone tested a few times a week. and Right. Um,
1: we didn't have a record deal um, when we first started um, this idea. So, you know, we just kind of figured that we would make it at the house. And um, so that's how we started. You know, normally we're, we go in and you track with the rhythm section live and you get the rhythm section Uh, takes first and then you overdub everything else including the vocals and this was a really fun way to work because we kind of did it backwards where we got the acoustic guitar and the vocals and then you know I was able to we just you know got the vocal takes and then when we took those tracks into um, another studio here locally um, we were able to it was kind of fun to be able to listen to final vocals while you were tracking the rhythm section. yeah well we um, also
3: did the rhythm section stuff as you know relatively small closed sessions and it was just it was Bonnie on bass and our, our friend Jamie De- Douglas on drums and um,
1: and they played live together so that still kind of gave it the live element We didn't
3: lose the thread or and it, yeah. and it didn't break the spell yeah
2: and that's a lot more easy to just like being in a room. With a couple of people, it's so like we just wore masks and yeah, and, and the we just sort of like allowed ourselves to be in a bubble together, so yeah, okay. we weren't having that kind of. But friction. I love
3: the you know uh, the the you know it's kind of the Dan Lanois, Mark Howard type you know it's like I like working in a house, especially you know if Buddy you have Miller too, yeah, mm-hmm. and if you have some nice gear, then because you're not you're not looking at the clock quite like you'd be in a studio that's costing you 1500 bucks a day and, yeah. and you can go out to the patio and you know smoke something or you could go put on a record and you then yeah. go sing and it's like oh you want to go for a walk let's go for a walk because that yeah. that takes some of the um the pressure off
0: yeah yeah I, I like that i i've made all my records and the records i've produced with other people it's like a, i call it a hybridized method like uh eleanor like you were saying i do prefer to if i if possible to get the rhythm tracks Done in a studio because the drums are the sure. most complex sonic yeah. instrument. Right. Of course, like I, I could hammer together a four-mic technique thing in here, but I've got parallel walls and I'm in my studio, yeah. and I could, you know, I know enough about sound engineering that I could probably coax something out of it.
3: But we also live in a city where there happens to be some really good
0: rooms to do just right. that, right? And for not that much money, you <laughs> right. know. So I, so I I go down and you know I work with Mark Raines. Yes. On my yeah, yeah, that's where I sure. right That's, right it, it. that's yeah. where uh, went to the station yeah. house
1: and actually right near his. Uh, studio there was a street sign that was Whitmore Street. So ah, I was like, "Ah, cool. oh, that's a sign. I Mark was going to
3: steal that sign for you guys. I know, come on,
0: Mark. The, uh, well, I've, I've got an Armstrong Avenue you. sign here somewhere, so I'm, I'm your man when it comes to illicit thievery of street signs. Uh-oh, love it. I don't know what the statute of limitations for stealing street signs is, but maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. Uh, but Mark's a wizard on drums. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. why would I not use someone who's so incredible at getting great drum sounds? But then I've done this in since the pre-Pro Tools days. I used to have an ADAT thing because ADATs were these... Yeah. Modular recorders that allows you to do eight tracks per tape. This is again not for us. This is for the listeners who may not know what that is. It's eight tracks per tape, but then you could stack them together to get sixteen or thirty two tracks. So we would do all the rough, the the basic tracks, mix it down to a stereo pair, or even mono if we needed seven tracks, and then just take that one eight at tape home. I would rent a sixteen oh four mixer just enough to get all the tracks in and out and rent one decent audio technica mic, which at that time was a decent mic to record with, what we could find that we could afford or whatever we could get and borrow stuff. And they do all the rest at home. As you said, without the clock limitations, if we want some tea, we don't have to send a runner out for, mm-hmm. we give them 30 bucks. We walk into the kitchen and right. make our choice of tea in our house. It's a very comfortable, you know, the eighties, music budgets got very bloated you know you think about no, granted Michael Jackson's the top of the heap but how much did he spend on a record you think
1: mm-hmm. how much did Prince, Prince
0: spend at Sun
3: he at like sunset lived Sound. there for a year it's ridiculous he no, it was at Sunset Sound he rented Studio 3 for like nine years nine like, yeah. years what, is Amazing. <laughs> what did that cost <laughs> <laughs> just like
2: even thinking of that I shudder to astronomical.
0: think of, well the, the catering budget alone yeah. for yeah. some right. of those things did you read Jake Slichter's uh, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star no he was the drummer for Semisonic. So he wasn't, um, who's the main guy from Semisonic? Dan He's Wilson. Dan Wilson, exactly. Uh, Ace songwriter. Uh, so he got like the, quite literally, the backseat view of being in a popular band and that whole run. And like the, the catering budget alone for the one closing time video mm-hmm. was more than most people would spend on an right. album now. And I do know, you said this before you, know, you started making the tracks at home and because you didn't have a label. That's now been inverted too. Musicians tend to make albums and then present them. Or try to shop it around sometimes more than it used to be. It used to be the other way around. Mm
1: -hmm. And there's not really any traditional uh, record deals left. I mean, we have a licensing deal. um, Yeah. So we're still ponying up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it's... Technology—it's incredible. It's allowed me to do this show. You know, I've got a digital camera on a stick. I've got some lights. I've got a backdrop. It, but it's—it's it's empowered us as musicians. But it's also stripped away a lot of the things. I know we were kicking this around when we were setting up. Like now, I know Photoshop, and I know coding, and I know how to light room, and all these things. Like I just set out to write songs and play in a rock band, mm-hmm. and now I've got a. Good Lord, the list is, and then social media on top of it all—it's endless.
1: Well, and I—I I was just actually thinking, I had a thought the other day that actually made me kind of sick to my stomach. I was like, we need to work on our Spotify metrics, and I was just like, oh Ugh.
3: god. You know, see, I, I, I'm going the opposite <laughs> way. Yeah, okay. We we Tell drove me more. Out to- We drove out to Malibu yesterday, and I heard three songs that I played on on the radio, and I was like, I need to just stay home and do this more.
4: Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Well, it's funny because you know I've played with some younger. uh, My last band was called the Millennial Falcons because it was two guys in their twenties. They got none of my jokes, but I love playing with them because you know they're they're vibrant. Like they're not like some musicians become jaded. They get a little checked out when they Uh get older. So it was cool to play with those guys because they're, like, super eager to do things. Yeah. But, like, and they were really sharp. This is in no way. I I will not impugn millennials or any other generation for that matter because it drives me nuts when people do that. I'm looking at you because you're the closest to the millennial in the room. But, like, the millennials I know work their asses off. They work oh, yeah. hard. They do their homework. You know, they've been they're they're doing the same thing every every generation has done, which is try to make sense of the world that was handed to them. Yeah, they had no choice. And
2: without any type of pay raise involved. Yeah. that's what the other thing that I realized. It's like I've been playing music since I was a teenager, but I haven't really seen much of a pay raise. Yeah. And <laughs>
0: get in line, sister. Me neither. I feel you. I know. I feel you exactly. Uh, I want to get another topic in before we get that last song here, because we've we've talked about paydays in the music business, and this kind of ties to the the way that most musicians are making the lion's share of their money now, which is touring, mm-hmm. right? We're we're it's kind of reemerging out of this COVID period. It's kind of a thing, but kind of not. And you're being tested, and some tours are out, but then they're having to be canceled. Close personal friends had whole tours now. I'm not even talking about the ones. I had, I had a close friend who had a tour. Booked in Europe for well, you were out with the Jayhawks at the same time, yeah. right when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Like you, how many more dates got canceled?
1: Um, well, we had a whole uh, spring full of dates, basically leading up to what would have been a summer dates with Steve Earle, But like thirty um, dates? No, the, the dates? Jayhawks
3: aren't touring. The, you know, no, I meant your own. Oh, yeah, we right. a lot. Um, ooh, I mean that would have been the whole spring. So I mean, those are okay. starting to come back. I yeah. mean, we're making some of that stuff up. Um, some of that stuff's happening in ne- in spring of 22. Yeah.
1: It's pretty tricky out there, and every single market is totally different, and right. the rules are different everywhere, and we were touring through Texas and Florida at the height of the Delta variant this summer. And it's, it's just, it's kind of taking the fun out of playing because, you know, you're on stage and you can't really wear a mask while you're singing and you've got VIP seats right in front of you with no masks. And in Texas and Florida, I have no idea if those people are vaccinated or not. And, you know, we were out with Steve this summer and we had a breakthrough, you know, we were all vaccinated and our steel player got it and he missed the whole rest of the tour. And yeah, he's fine. Um, He had a headache
3: for four days, but. You know, and he had to stay, you know, be quarantined in a hotel in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Yeah, This is still a bad time to be in the mass gathering industry.
0: Yeah. Well, it's... In some ways, I'm surprised it hasn't collapsed more than it has. You know, there's the McMurtry line. At the end of the rope, there's usually a little more rope. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not always, though. (laughs) Not always. Uh, But it was already hard before COVID. It was already... Uh, so much of the revenue for musicians had been pushed to the live show ticket prices had started creeping up but then you've got these big conglomerates Live Nation whatever taking a a share of the profit and the I'm still mad that other bands didn't get on board with Pearl Jam when they were fighting Ticketmaster all those years ago nobody else would fight them right um, Radiohead did a little bit. They did some tours where they kind of self prom- like self promoted and self mm-hmm. did everything. But by and large, the industry just kowtows. By the industry, I mean the musicians kowtow well, to the people from the It's industry. a
1: little tricky because even with COVID this summer, you know, Jason Isbell, he you know took a stand and in Texas, and some of the venues were able to accommodate and right. some weren't. And you know, they they actually one of his Dallas shows got canceled and Billy Bob's picked up the show. Right and. This is at a time when the Governor is literally threatening to take away liquor licenses if you do proof of acts at a show. And so like they, he likes they, small government. and and right. so the so the, <laughs> the they interviewed the owner of Billy Bobs and he was like, "Ah, oh, man, we bring in so much tax revenue. I'm not worried about it. We're just doing this for this one show. Who cares. And you know, it's just it's really frustrating to me because I want to support you know the small venues like the mucky duck in houston and and like i want to get back to work to support them and to support our agent and to keep live music alive but like we're not even able to protect ourselves and have a safe working environment because right. of the laws in texas and so it's just really tricky it's kind of like feeling like flying after 9-11 like it's just not as much fun And, you know, I don't want to have animosity towards the audience because they're not wearing their masks, even though it's been suggested. But, um, you know, it's just it's pretty hard. It's hard for us to stay healthy out there. It takes a lot of energy and time and planning to get these tours together. And when, you know it's like a house of cards when you know one thing falls it can just wreck the whole tour and then you know you've lost a lot of money and it's it's just really
2: it's a little frustrating out there right now yeah i feel like everything's just a hypothetical it's been remained that way and that's just an uncomfortable place to be like it's it's kind of disheartening to make
1: plans when you know that they might be canceled again and so like a lot of our tour dates with the jayhawks have been canceled and rescheduled and canceled and rescheduled again
0: um, and that all takes time and money. That's uh-huh. all money against future earnings.
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's a little tricky. Uh,
0: be- well, before COVID, it was livelihood. So you're concerned about your livelihood as a musician. And our culture, I say this all the time, our culture talks about celebrating art and musicians, but they really don't. No. Because the only thing that you celebrate are things that you're willing to pay for. And people aren't really willing to pay for it. Music is free. There's that Gillian Welch song with uh-huh. everything is free now. So... Before, it was our livelihoods, and now it's our livelihoods as well as our mortality. Mm-hmm. It's our physical well-being. Musicians have died. John Prine died. Yep. Yeah. You know, uh, a favorite of mine, as almost everyone who's ever put pen to paper and written a song, yeah, everyone knows absolutely. who John Prine is. And he's not the only one. Uh, other people have lost their lives, too. And then people outside the music community have lost their lives. And I, I without, I, it, I will never understand why people have reacted the way they have the last two years in America, I it, will never. It
1: just should not be political. Um,
0: it should not be political. I mean, I'm, I've got plenty of things that I will be. I'm happy to be political about, but this should not be politicized. Anyway, public
3: health. You know, public health is not a yeah, political
0: issue. It's it's not really a thing. So, well, walk me through. You know, you guys have done touring through blue states, red states, through this whole time. You know, at least you've been starting up since this last summer, since vaccinations have been a thing. So, like, what kind of testing regimen is that. Is this like a once a week thing, a twice a week thing? Because before you jump in, like I I've, I've got friends who've been out, you know, uh, you know, perhaps the Steve Rur organization has the resources to put the pedal steel player up in a hotel for two weeks. Right. But some And kept tour- him on payroll. Well, right. But some tours <laughs> don't have that at all. But that, that's right.
1: another thing I was going to come back to is actually like like Jason is is bigger than Steve at this point. Like even yeah. though, you know, Steve is is he's a legacy you know, artist. A legendary artist as a songwriter no um, as far as numbers this year, as far as bringing people out to shows in the the kind of clubs, clubs that we play like steve isn't even at the level where he can like throw down and say this has to be this way at this concert he tried to do that at the beginning of his tour this summer and his agent and all the clubs and everybody pushed back and said we can't do this was back in um, april we right, can't we, we can't require vaccinations. So before the delta variant um, even yeah. came into play So like, it's just a really, uh, uncertain, uncertain landscape. And like, we, we all want to make these demands and, and have, you know, certain protocols, but it's pretty tough. So, you know, what we're doing is we're, we're vaccinated. Chris just got his booster, um, I've already had COVID, and the both shots are pretty tough on me. So I'm gonna um, I talk to my doctor, and I'm gonna wait on the booster for a little bit. Yeah. Um, we're testing regularly. Um, we wear masks.
3: We um, don't have guests backstage. It's a different, yeah. You know, it's a yeah. different experience.
2: There's there's less interaction with the people in yeah. that regard, which is a little, you know. It's sad on both ends along those lines, yeah,', yeah we're I don't miss
1: that well, we're not able to go to go out and and mingle with the audience yeah. cause, um it's just not safe for us to do so um as far as i mean
2: it's, it's also just awkward, it's really it's a it's i mean when we were first starting to play shows, it was like I was trying not to shake people's hands right, and that was like. I'm selling merch to them and they want to shake my hand and I'm like, I don't want to do this and then they don't want to buy something from me or they feel offended by it. And it's like this weird sort of... We, we don't know how to interact with each other anymore. Yeah. We don't yeah. trust each other. It's That's the of, other problem is there's yeah. just not enough. I don't trust this person is doing the due diligence that I am. Like I make a point of, I do a weekly show at, now that the continental club is back open in Austin and I have a different guest every week. I had a, I had a almost a, a situation where I was going to have a guest who wasn't vaccinated. Um, I made the assumption and I fixed that problem and I make sure that everyone that is, is that at least yeah. I well, also go and get a, a, a PCR test we weekly. So at least I know that I have a, a deeper test than just a rapid one, but I do that one every day of show too. Like I do a lot just to give the people that are coming to this small venue, which is the Continental Gallery. It's right. not the the club downstairs. It's a small place to put in and we're going to have to be very intimate. And because of that, I, I feel it, it makes me fill with a lot of anxiety that I'm putting people in a position where they're like, come to my show, you could get yeah. COVID. That's not a fun <laughs> thing to do. Or to my <laughs> guest, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, Eleanor, I'm glad that you're doing okay, Thanks. first and foremost. I mean, it's uh people's health undercuts all of these other things and the safety of this. Again, it shouldn't be politicized. Uh and I'm well, I'm glad to hear that you've been able to, you know, Bonnie, do the shows and, and regularly be tested and you two doing your thing. I'm glad you guys are headed to Europe before too terribly long. That's gonna be a whole other ball of wax. Mm-hmm. Um it's just it's, we're in such a complex place right now, like you said, you're tired of making plans and have them being cancelled and it's also again there's there's economies of scale to be taken into consideration in terms of every time you have to rebook a tour we all know what, how long, much effort and legwork and time it takes to book a tour uh whether it's you doing it or someone else doing it somebody's doing it you're either mm-hmm. doing it yourself and that's your time or you're paying someone else to do it and that's their time and their your your dime that they're doing that so well,
1: even radio um, component, components, like usually you would be booking. Uh, you know, if you've got a record coming out, you book the tour. You right. ideally are stopping at radio stations on the, along the way and doing in stores at, at, at record stores, and you know a lot of stations aren't having guests right now, yeah. and it's it's just kind of like how are how do we even do this you know and a lot of our fans are progressive and not comfortable coming out to a small club yeah. indoors and and i was pretty surprised here in la we went to saw uh, and saw uh, wilco at the orpheum and then we saw another band at a, a small venue and the mass game even though you are supposed to wear your mask indoors in LA people are not doing it and um and I have a lot of sense of security in knowing that there's proof of vaccination And yeah. that obviously that a makes it a way. lot yeah. less stressful but I also don't want to have a somebody have a breakthrough and give me COVID and then have to cancel my next tour so right. I'm being proactive and wearing a mask
0: musicians are in such a difficult position because I feel like again, a little bit of a cliche, but like the traveling bard, the traveling person who's bringing the little kernel of truth and artistic truth around the country and around the world. You know, we're the people who have seen every city. Most people are in their town. You Mm -hmm. come to their town for one night on Tuesday. And Bonnie, to your point, they want to come see you after the show. Like, hey, what's going on? How was the show in Tulsa? Now you're in Little Rock or wherever. You know, Mm -hmm. you're a day's drive or four-hour drive. And But that puts you, us, in that line of fire directly because every venue, especially if it's a larger venue, the larger venue the more staff there are. The more staff, the more people there are. And each of those person each of those people persons. I'm not sure if I'm saying it the right way. They're all cutting across all these different demographics in their world. One guy fills up in a BP station in Nashville, buys a pack of smokes from the clerk who has COVID, brings it to the show as the security guy. Then this security guy gets it. Then someone comes through next week before they knew they'd been t- or before the test had started testing positive, And now they've given it to your pedal steel player. Right. Right? And that's right. how this works. That's why I feel like an idiot like I'm not an epidemiologist, but social distancing is very simple. Yeah. And but there's now there's things
2: that we know that do work versus the things that are not. And I think we've also we have so much shame around a lot of these things that like because we don't want to ask the awkward questions or we don't want right. to say the thing or whatever. It I mean even with the guests that I found out who hadn't been vaccinated, like that was like uh like it, it, it made me they got sick which is kind of how it sick, came up <laughs> was how it all got came, how it came up cuz i thought it was the a virus yes okay. it was a it was supposedly i thought it was a breakthrough case and by but sick, it wasn't you mean sick
0: with covid or sick with something sick with else COVID. sick with covid okay.
2: the the point is is that it also just put me in a position of like i don't even know how to interact with somebody now it's <laughs> right. changing our ability to like can i remain friends with somebody through all of this like it it's definitely uh putting us constantly like you meet a stranger and you have no context with this person or even if you do know them you just don't know if you feel view things the same way and that you 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 have so much care because i think so many people too have also like looked at this like well well i'm going to be fine and it's like well it's not about you right like, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm protecting myself. I'm wearing my mask because I want to make sure that if something is wrong with me, that I am protecting other people from it. Right. And that is such a concept that has been so bizarrely taken out of context. And like you were saying before, we just like, that that's empathy in in its truest form right there. But
1: they're testing, but, it's testing your empathy because you are like, doing your best to go the extra mile to be empathetic and for the sake of other people. And then you can't even have
2: a conversation or argument about it because they're not even, even willing to, to, to agree to the same rules the same facts and the same rules we've
1: gotten some kind of hateful messages you know like posting about being vaccinated and stuff and and you know basically saying it's all a hoax and i'm like okay so my life experience is is a hoax and okay right, okay well this takes
0: us directly to kind of one of the, the, the 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 main question of this last portion of our show before we get to the last song Which is I normally I don't ever read my questions directly off the page, but I spent a long time crafting this particular question because it's kind of trying to tie everything together we've been talking about for the last several minutes. Which is goes like this: So being on tour puts you in front of all kinds of people in a very divided country. COVID nineteen has made that worse. Uh, Your boss for now, Steve Earle, uh, very political guy. Bonnie, you've toured with James McMurtry, he's political but in a more subdued way. He tells stories in a different way, but he, he, he's talking about. He those is, issues. but
2: this particular thing, it's been a lot harder f- for him. Like he right. hasn't come back to the Continental. Like, he canceled right. out a tour that was in September. Like he's right. he's been really really strict on this. Yes,
0: because I've, I've been watching a lot yeah. of his streaming shows. So I've I'm, he's he's my new hero these days. <laughs> um, but both of these artists, they they pull no punches when it comes to these kinds of things, or to the extent that they can. We talked about Isabel and him moving his shows around. Very strict rules. Um, I've only been to a handful of shows. Uh, Since this started. So, my question is: you know, what is it like touring through red states and blue states in the new millennium, especially in the last two years in terms of COVID and the general feeling of division in our country?
1: I think it's definitely getting more divided. Um, You know, Chris and I have been writing political songs for quite some time. And um, our most recent record, which kind of came out um, in the lead-up to the election, um, the last election. Um, was definitely a lot more political, and we are not afraid to say things that are political on stage. But like, it, people are really tired of politics. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Um, I think our job as musicians is kind of the Woody Guthrie, um, you know, uh, you know, to disturb uh, the comfortable mm-hmm. and uh, comfort, comfort the disturbed. The disturbed. And um, there's a, it's a really tricky because you don't want to alienate your audience. um, But you do want to wake people up a little bit uh, to what's going on. Um, But everything is so extremely polarized. And so everyone is so raw from this COVID thing. And like, people are sick of it, whatever side you're on, like everybody is worn out and exhausted. And just the constant narrative of like, stress and fear in the media is just getting really old. And I think, you know, our jobs are to kind of provide some kind of comfort to people that's what i wanted Um, to
3: say i mean i think when you're out here playing shows for a living um at any level i mean it's expensive to go to a show yeah um you have to just go into the the venue with an open mind and an open heart um and we owe that to the audience we're performers like i mean it doesn't matter how i feel at any given moment you know, it matters the performance we're giving. You know, if you can enjoy it, it's sort of icing on the cake. But can we put on a good show even if we're not feeling well or are concerned about other things going on in our lives? Um, on the Steve tour, the night art, we found out our pedal steel player had COVID. We were playing in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And that was the most well-masked audience of the tour. So it's so easy to sit in Los Angeles and bag on someone in Florida. But, like, if we're just going on a city-by-city, city, you know, just – Taking people for what we see and how they treat us—that was the most well-behaved venue of the tour. And that—that
1: that goes back to what Bonnie was saying: is that we need to be doing, we need to be listening more and not like, like you shouldn't just judge Florida because we've like played Fort Lauderdale to this lovely audience that was, you know, empathetic and all, you know, trying their best to to not spread a deadly disease. And 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 so I myself have to check myself and and not. You know, judge so much and just, um, just try to remember that
2: we're all human. And well, I also like my previous record, which was called "Last Last Will and Testament," really super uplifting title. Um, but it, I, I, it was also very political. The things that I was getting into along those lines. But I feel like one of the things that I try to implement, instead of just being like, you should throw away all your guns or something of that sort. I pose questions. I want to ask the I ask them in the song, like who do you want to be? Where do you want to go? What do you want to say? Like there there are a lot of different things that I'm putting it to the to the person who's listening to answer these questions for me because I feel like that's a great way to start a conversation first of all. If you ask somebody instead of telling them what you think, um and and as far as like this whole covid thing, it's just trying to c- come at it to where that you you know that people are wanting to be there. There is this there's this desire to be together and and to 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 perform for and so on and so forth. So we still have that to some degree, but we definitely need to um, do what we can to comfort this whole thing and to at least try to understand where somebody's coming from, so that way we can essentially make roads to to fixing what
0: is yeah. broken.
1: Yeah. We need to turn the temperature down a little bit. It's just you know. It's I don't want to fight anymore about
0: yeah. it. I, I don't want to fight with anybody about anything. Uh, my last question before this song, this is kind of the second half of that first question, which is, can music still unite people?
2: Absolutely.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah? How?
2: I think it has so much during this pandemic, too. I mean, I I, I feel like even though a lot of things went to vi- like digital or virtual shows Streaming and things eventually... Lord, I hope we never have to really go back to that again. I I I I needed to 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 play music with other people and perform and, and f- to to have that energy that you share. Like when we did finally see each other for the first time we met out in Turlingua and and got to play song and I, uh, my family was singing harmony with me. I burst out in tears just yeah. because that was something that's so viscerally like important to me. And I hadn't had it. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like, I, sorry. No, I'm getting all emotional. Stop it with the weepies. Anyway,
4: it's okay. It's but real I stuff. Think, Go with it. But
2: that's the thing about what this whole thing has done. Is like it made music. It, it comforted so many people through this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that like. I think people have always been like, it's in the background. It's something that's always been there. They love it, but they didn't really realize how much they loved it until they couldn't have it. And so I do think that once we're finally able to be safe with each other, and I think that's the biggest part, is that so many people want so much to be able to have their old life back, but we also need to agree that we're not going to have our old life back. We can try to get back to some sort of form of normalcy, but we can only do that if we do it together.
3: Yeah, Yeah. There's something about the shared experience aspect of music that and and maybe even as performers that are out you know slogging it out every night you don't feel but Eleanor and I went and like she had mentioned we saw we saw Wilco and that was the we have some friends that work in the organization and we went out we put our masks on it was the first show we'd seen as punters in probably about two years i started
1: crying after the first song like i i didn't expect that because it wasn't even like a really sentimental kind of song it was just like such a like big energy but it was Um, great i mean
3: it's just the the mix sounded good they were in top form powerful and 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 jeff was really happy to be there they made a whole tour without anyone in their bubble getting sick and he was you know he was almost tearing up when he was thanking the crew and but just that shared experience, and now, granted, it was a bit marred because you're like, well, "That guy behind me is not wearing a mask." Uh, yeah. that, but it still is like you know, a great band, and you know, a, a pretty full room of people just experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and we do that with the arts. We do yeah. that with with film. We do that. That's why know. we do it.
0: Yeah. Well, like, like I said before, that's why we've all made such questionable life choices <laughs> because we're obsessed with. It. I've been obsessed with music. It's it's, it's written into my code. It's yeah. I can't not do it. I, it's it's just it's the most important thing I will ever do, whether I sell a record or ne- or sell twenty million records. I mean, it would be better to sell more than, rather than less, but I would do it regardless.
2: Well, and that's not why we do it. That's the yeah. reality of it. Is is like yeah. as much as you say you want to like be a star or something of that sort, or or show people that you are. Um, uh, Just deserving successful. of where you are To be successful yeah. at it or whatever But like the real drive behind it Isn't about uh, material outcome yeah. It's about the connection that you create yeah. and, and the need to Emotionally connect with other people Yeah,
0: I do it because I want I always said I want, I want to make people feel something mm. You know, back then it was like The ennui of the, the Gen X ennui, the kind can of general Feeling, it's like can, can I Say something so powerful that you feel it too you know, through a digital medium or through a live show is even more intimate. It's a better, you know, whether it's a giant show can still be very intimate. You know, I had, uh, I want to hear this song in just a second, but I had I had two moments where I choked up and through the course of this pandemic, which I mean, there were many more than that, but the big one was when I got my first vaccination.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. me too.
0: Because it wasn't like Ollie Oli oxen free, force field up. I, for me, the specific feeling was this is the on-ramp to the comeback trail. This is a real yes tangible thing which will take me just as you said bonnie a few minutes ago it's not the end and it may not ever go back to the way it was but it's it's the road it's the getting on that highway to take us to that new place it's going to be a place it's going to feel more normal Mm -hmm. and the second time was the live show that i saw we went to our first show was outdoors at the greek we saw uh the mavericks Mm -hmm. with los lobos Two great bands. Yep. And then Ozo Motley just turned out to be there too, which I didn't know because they weren't on the ticket. They don't print tickets anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there was another band even before that. And I didn't even know the opening band, but it's the first time. Yeah. I'd, I'd watched a, I'd watched hundreds of streaming shows. Tons by McMurtry, mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan Brook. Who else? I can't even remember. Madison Cunningham did mm-hmm. a really great one. Mm-hmm. Um, I
2: had a virtual Thursday show every week too.
0: I saw some of yours. Mm-hmm. But to see it live, to hear stage volume out of amps, yep, mm-hmm. and to hear the the...
2: Well, just to be able to play together. I mean, that yeah. really, like, that was the thing that, like, I could sit there in my room all along, all, all, every day during the pandemic and still have that. But, like, the ability to to, to have that energy shared and to yeah. be able to play together, that's like, you know, for, for me, it's not just about the solo aspect of music. Yeah. It's about, oh, yeah. like, the orchestrated, we all have a part to play. Yeah. And when we get together and we get to make something beautiful together, then that has much more impact on me personally and I think other people.
0: Yeah, it's additive. There's always more love. It's a thing about siblings, right? Tying it all together, tying the whole thing together. <laughs> like, you know, people say, like, you have one kid and you have another kid. You don't take the love you have and split it in half and give the other half to the other yeah. kid. It's just more. More, yeah. It's always additive. It's always additive. Anyway, how about one last song before I kick your butts out of here? What is this last tune? Uh,
2: hurting for a Letdown. T- um, tell
0: me a little bit about this.
2: I wrote this one. This is uh, one that I kind of brought to the to the mix. In fact, I think I wrote it right around that time period. I think in like late November or whatever. But um, I basically have what I refer to as a suicidal heart. So I don't always choose the people, but it just happens. And so I kind of wanted to write. Um, sort of my own ghost story of my love life um, in, a, in a form of, of addiction, essentially, because All that right. seems to be my problem. <laughs> Laying
0: it out there, Bonnie Whitmore. This is the Whitmore Sisters and Independence Day. The song is hurting for a letdown. Two One, two, three.
5: Exactly. (laughs) Yeah <laughs> Yeah.
0: One last song from the Whitmore sisters that's hurting for a letdown. Bonnie, Chris, Eleanor, thank you so much for sharing time with us and your stories. It's been such a wonderful conversation. I just told you a second ago, I tried to keep this short, but I've had such a great conversation. I just had to keep it rolling.
1: Likewise. It's been great great to be be here. I
0: appreciate it so very much. I can't wait for you guys to get out there. I can't wait for people to hear the music you've got for them. It's fantastic, and I've enjoyed this conversation so very much. You can find the Whitmore Sisters at thewhitmoresisters.com, also on Twitter at Whitmore Sisters. I love singing in the southern way. The new album, as they said, Ghost Stories, it's out on the 21st of January on Red House Records. Go see them in the States next summer. I hope you guys are safe, and much love to you and all of your people. So thank you to Eleanor, Bonnie, and Chris, the Whitmore Sisters. Also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton, also Edie Fishcamp armstrong the wizened Tony Tonlo Piscotti manages the Independence Day website Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society be sure to check out those guys for Independence Day as always I am Joe Armstrong if you do one thing today please be good to one another
5: I <laughs>